This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, February 4th, 2017, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The reader is Sharon Thomas. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, and by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is God's word. Well, I said, I think in the very first sermon that this letter was going to be inspiring, but not before it was perspiring for us. It's going to make us sweat a little bit, and today is no different. Um, It's a good word, but it's a hard word. Uh, that we're going to hear today. If we back up a little bit, our text is out of 1 Peter chapter 2, um, verses 13 to 17, but we back up a little bit and we see that Peter again revisits that phrase exile, calling us sojourners and exiles and strangers, um, and he's emphasizing this idea that, that we are resident aliens in this place, that we are tourists, if you will, traveling through this world, passing through this world on our way to our true homeland with Jesus. And this world um, is a world that hated Jesus. He said as much. And it's a world that, uh, as much as they may claim differently, is very hostile toward His Word. But this is not um, a surprise to Jesus. He could have saved us in a lot of different ways and after saving us, taken us home with Him or done all kinds of things, but He left us here. This is where He expected us to be. This is where Jesus wants us to be. And in John chapter 17, we know that that is true because Jesus said so in a very lengthy prayer when He's with His disciples on the evening He will be arrested to later be crucified. This is what He prayed in John chapter 17. He says, speaking of his disciples and future disciples, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth." As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And what that reveals is that Jesus doesn't just leave us here. He actually sends us into the world. And He gives us His Word, which teaches us how we are supposed to live in that world. And if you spend any time reading the Bible, and I pray that you spend a lot of time reading the Bible, you're going to see that His Word teaches us to do a lot of things that are sometimes countercultural, 
which means it pushes against culture. It is very different. It swims against the stream. And the longer and the further our culture goes along, I'm seeing that the more it does push against the stream. And then there's those things that are also counterintuitive. Those things that just for us emotionally or intellectually just are hard and difficult and uncomfortable. But this is what His Word teaches us to do. How to live. We ended last week with His charge through Peter to abstain from sin. To resist following after a rebellious world and to keep your conduct in the world honorable so that they will see your good deeds and many will be saved and they will glorify God as a result. And then as he begins to unpack what he means by good deeds, one of the first things he says is to honor the emperor. And having an emperor today is a little odd, but back then who he's talking about is the Roman emperor named Nero. And if you know anything about Nero, he was a bad dude and a nut job, among other things. But he was the Roman emperor who, as crazy as he was, set the city on fire, blamed the Christians, and then later began to kill them, including Paul and Peter, who's writing this letter. There were other emperors who were even more cruel and who slaughtered even more Christians in more heinous ways. And Peter, who is writing inspired Scripture, and though Peter doesn't know the future, God does, saying, honor the emperor. Seriously? I mean, that should be the thought of anyone reading this at this time and then within 10 years, 20 years of that time, like, honor him? The guy who's killing us? Now, these are the kinds of instructions that are difficult. But these are the kinds of inspired instructions that are not merely suggestions from Peter, but commands from our God. And so as we read these things, it's like, oh, that's difficult, that's uncomfortable, but that is God's will for us. How do we, that, that's hard to swallow, I agree. And the rest of Peter's letter, as we start here, begins to unpack the kinds of relationships that we are supposed to have, the kinds of good deeds that are supposed to unfold in the rest of our lives. And this is going to be part one of, part, of two parts. I'm going to focus on one verse and then unpack it next week and how it relates to all these others. But as he begins to unpack what he means by good deeds, beginning with honor the emperor, subject yourself to these authorities that are cruel and evil, He's going to start calling us to some radical kinds of relationships. And the reason he can call us to these radical, and they are radical, countercultural, counterintuitive, is because we've had a radical change of relationship with our God. Whatever defines your relationship with God is going to guide your relationship in the world whether it be with emperors, whether it be with friends, whether it be with your spouse, or with anyone. This vertical relationship, how you understand this vertical relationship to be, will impact and govern these relationships. Always. 
whether you want it to or not. And so the question that we, we wrestle is like, okay, so if that's true, if this is impacting this, how do I personally relate to God? I mean, what kind of relationship do we have as Christians? And the truth is that every human being, every creation for that matter, has some kind of relationship with the God of the universe. Whether they want to recognize it or not, God is their divine creator and their judge. But the gospel of Jesus, for those who believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, a debt I could not pay, and that he rose from the dead to give me eternal life for anyone who will repent and believe, for people who believe that, who have trusted Jesus in that way, our relationship with God changes. We are saved, rescued, adopted into God's family. He becomes our heavenly Father. This is what Peter has been talking about. In verses 9 and 10 of this same chapter, he said that, we were called out of darkness into His marvelous light. He says that once we were not a people, but now, because of Christ, through Christ, by grace, through faith, in what He has done, we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. And remember the beginning of Peter. He said like we have this new relationship in Christ. A new birth into this living hope that secures for us an eternal inheritance to proclaim God's awesomeness until He returns to us and we return to Him. Like, we understand, I hope you understand, what makes that relationship possible. Jesus. Not your goodness, not anything you can do, but what Jesus has done. That's what makes that relationship possible. But the question that I've been struggling with or wrestling with this week is what actually characterizes this relationship? Is it a boss-employee relationship? Is it a marriage? Is it a friendship? Because there's all kinds of relationships. And many of those metaphors apply. But as I said, how I understand my relationship with God is going to govern how I relate to everything and everyone else. And the Bible uses all kinds of metaphors to describe this relationship we have with Christ. Among other things, it says that we are new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. That we are hidden now in Christ. That we are adopted children. That we are co-heirs with Jesus. That we are sheep in the flock of Jesus, who is the great shepherd. That we are branches in the vine that is Jesus. That we are members of Jesus' body, of whom He is the head. That we are even friends of Jesus. And each of these is a good metaphor. Each of these is, I'm an English teacher, right? I love metaphors. I love imagery. Like that gives us a unique perspective on every aspect of this most complex relationship we have with Jesus. But this morning I want to focus on how Peter commands us to live and what that talks about or reveals about our relationship with our God. I draw your attention to verse 16 in 1 Peter chapter 2. 
where Peter writes, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. I'm going to drill down in that verse for a little bit. Now, the part we love is the beginning of that verse where it says Peter defines us as a people who are free. And without doubt, freedom isn't just an American thing. That's kind of the new, or not new thing, but a, a repeated mantra for Americans. Freedom, freedom, freedom. And I'm not sure it's become kind of ambiguous as to what that actually means. So when we say we're free in Christ, well, what does that mean? Well, let's talk about what it means to not be free in Christ. Because apart from Jesus... Apart from faith in Jesus, trusting in Jesus for your soul, you are not free. Anything but. The Bible says that everyone who's born is born sinful and imperfect and rebellious. The Bible uses very um, non-free, enslaving language to talk about those who are not saved. Non-believers. It tells what sin does to us, right? Sin is, in many ways, powerlessness to find satisfaction. Sin is captivation of self. You can't stop thinking about yourself. Sin is, is blindness to pride. Sin is bondage to unrighteousness in thought and in word and in deed. Sin is total depravity not absolute depravity. Absolute depravity would mean that every uh, that we are as evil as we can be, and we know that we can always be a little more evil in some way. But total depravity says everything that I am, my mind, my, my thoughts, my actions, all that is, every part of me is somehow tainted with sin and less than. Sin is imprisonment. It's imprisonment to sin. It's imprisonment under the wrath of God. Sin is anything but freedom to find life. It is actually failure to avoid death. But, Peter says, as does Paul in Galatians 5 verse 1, that it was for freedom that Christ set you free. For freedom. Okay. So what does that mean, right? We know that Isaiah, the prophet who, who preached and proclaimed many messianic prophecies about Jesus, he said right, that the Messiah was coming to, to proclaim good news and to release captives, prisoners, to set them free. So how does Jesus set us free? Well, there's probably 50 sermons I could write about that question. But let me be brief Jesus, for those who put their trust for their souls in His hands, that look at Him and say, you died the death that I deserve to die for my sin. And you lived the life and, and made righteousness in a way I never could have. And you gave it to me. That I am not saved because of what I've done. I will not stand before the Lord and say, oh Lord, look what I did. I have a little more good than I had bad. That I'll stand before the Lord and say, I am unworthy, but I'm made worthy because of your son. And I trust him. 
For that person, Jesus sets you free. He sets you free from sin. He sets you free from self. He sets you free from the power of Satan and the curse of death. He sets us free from our guilt that we could never achieve the goodness that we were supposed to, that we failed to meet the law as He demanded. He sets us free from the penalty of sin, which is death. He sets us free from the shame He cleanses our sin, the shame that comes from our own sin, the shame that comes from sins of others. He says, look, the old is gone, the new has come. You are a child cleansed and clean in my eyes. He sets us free from our efforts to try and save ourselves and to try and earn God's favor and impress Him by what we did. And He's like, "Mm, not impressed. But I planned for your failure. I love you. And I knew you would fall short. He sets us free from the approval of man of which... I'm sure no one in here struggles with, but I've heard people do. He sets us free from the power of sin. Where Paul can say, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies, that you have that power by grace through his spirit to actually fight that. He sets us free from life without hope, life without purpose, life without meaning. He sets us free from living in the fear of death. Peter tells us, look, live free! You are free in Christ, free from these things. You, of all people, are free. Free of guilt, free of shame, free of fear of failure. Oh man, what lightness that can bring to your soul that Jesus has planned for my screw-up, planned for my mistakes, knew my weakness, and yet why was a sinner died for me? Freedom. And yet Peter says, Be careful. Don't abuse that freedom. Paul says the exact same thing in that same passage in Galatians 5. He later says, after it was for freedom that Christ set you free. And then he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. You must always remember that Peter warns about stuff like that. Paul warns about stuff like that because we are apt to do stuff like that. We will be tempted to abuse our freedom, to use it as they say, as an opportunity for the flesh or to cover up evil. Like, what what does that mean? I would suggest that Scripture teaches that it's excusing our sin instead of confessing it all in the name of grace. That it's living as if it isn't possible in Christ to grieve God or to please Him. But He's never grieved with anything I do. And He's not pleased in anything I do. That it's impossible to grieve. That, that all is covered in grace. And as long as you believe in Jesus, it doesn't matter how you live. That's not the gospel. That's a lie. There's been somewhat of a recent movement, and I say recent in light of Peter, it may not be very recent at all. It's a popular way of teaching that emphasizes the grace of God at the exclusion of other teachings like repentance and confession. It's this hyper, uber, unbiblical grace that says, oh, I'm not just freed from sin, I'm actually free to sin. It doesn't matter. 
And it's unlikely anyone would ever state that, though I have heard people say, oh, I don't have to confess anything. Jesus already forgave all that. This is often called cheap grace because they fail to remember how much our salvation costs. It was the most expensive thing ever purchased in the history of the universe. Cheap grace is this term that's traced back to a German theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You may have heard of him. He wrote a book that I encourage you to read called The Cost of Discipleship back in the 30s. And he defined cheap grace as the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. Dare I say, it is, if you will, a gospel without the cross and only talking about the resurrection. See, grace frees us in many ways from the fear of failure. Because I know that Jesus planned for it. That he saw my sins and sees way more sins than I could ever tally on a piece of paper for him. And yet it doesn't free us from the fear of God. It frees us from death that comes from him. But it doesn't free us from living a life for him in light of that truth. The call to salvation is a call to receive free grace. It is an invitation to say, I know how sinful you are. I know how broken you are. I know how rebellious you are. It is free. Come and partake. Come and receive forgiveness. Come and be loved by your Savior. But Peter has already stated, and I believe Andrew preached this in the beginning of this letter, it's a call to be holy in your conduct. So Peter said, to be holy in your conduct. Yes, you have been hidden in Christ. You have positionally been made holy before God. And yet we have this body of flesh where Peter can say, yeah, be holy. Be who you are in your conduct. Freedom of Christ does not mean freedom to live however you want. But as Peter says, freedom to live as servants of God. Now this is where it's going to get a little sweaty. And I've just been struggling with this all week and now it's your turn. So have fun. But the word translated servant here is a really interesting word. And I will start by saying this, I am not a Greek scholar. I am very grateful for those who are. I have computer programs and books and Andrew and other people to talk to. But I am not a Greek scholar, and it's not my goal to give a lesson on Greek words, but to perhaps challenge our perspective as revealed by the words chosen here. The word translated servant here appears in the New Testament, the Greek word, approximately 130-ish times, over 100 times, and people would add more different variations of it, but well over 100 times. And most often the word uh, that you probably have in your translation, servant or bondservant, is the translation of a Greek word, doulos. And I say most often because there's other words that could be translated that. But in this case, doulos 
which means one who is subservient to and entirely at the disposal of his master, a slave. Now in this text and in other texts, it could be translated slave. Usually it's not. But just for a second, if we could just pause, if that's allowed, to consider what if our relationship with God was defined in those terms? Living as a slave to God. As a slave to Christ. And I realize when you say that, many of us are like, ooh, ooh. Ah, uh, that feels yucky. I don't like it. Just sit on it for a second. One commentator noted that the most popular translations, and this pretty much all of them, so I would say the ones most commonly used, NAS, the NIV, the ESV, which we use, they understandably do their best to avoid uh, this unpopular word. And I don't know what their decision-making is behind that. There's translating teams and Every translation team has their own reasons behind why they pick the word they do, their whole process, the, the way that they are coming about the translation, the context. They have all kinds of reasons for that. I'm sure if you sat down each of these teams for each of these translations, they would say, this is why we did this, this is why we did that. But since they're not here, I'm not a Greek scholar, we'll just explore. Most usually in all these translations, the word slave, when it's translated slave, it is usually talking about the actual position of a slave, like an actual slave. Or it's often talking about bondage to something that's inanimate. So if it's like slave to sin, slave to righteousness, they'll use the word slave at that point. But as I stated, and as you probably saw in the ESV, the most common and favorite English word is servant. Some translators maybe get a little bit closer and they use bond servant. Some use bond slave, which is similar to a slavery, but someone has voluntarily submitted themselves. In Roman times, we talked about bond servant. It could refer to someone, as I said, who voluntarily served others, but usually it referred to one who held a permanent position of servitude. So although it sounds better, makes us feel a little less eh. In truth, we're talking about a slave. The only one translation that I found translated as slave every time was a translation called the Holman Christian Standard Bible, not to be confused with the Christian Standard Bible, which came out in 2017. Holman Christian came out in 2003, I believe. In which case, the verse that I read in verse 16 says this, as God's slaves live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a way to conceal evil. So consider reading that text. Fine translation. But it brings to it perhaps different connotations, different feelings, different, oh, wait, wait a second. This is the relationship I have with God, with Christ. It seems Different, odd. I don't know if I've pressed into that before. Personally, I think it's helpful, especially in today's Christianity. Whether it's warranted in Greek or not, because different translators may disagree, 
The use of slave certainly impacts the way we view it. And if you were to kind of continue and go, well, what if we just started using slave in all these other places where this word doulos comes? How, how would that feel? How would that change my perspective? Um, consider Peter himself in a second letter. So if you just turn your Bible over to 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, you will see in the uh, opening, I'm guessing in 1 Peter um, I'm sorry, 2 Peter of the ESV. It will say, Simeon Peter, or Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. But that's the same word. So if you look at it in the Holman, for example, it's going to say, Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. And I'm sure the translators say, well, people didn't totally use slave to address letters. Like, maybe not. I guess the translators in the Holman thought it might be okay depending on what their reasoning is. And if you continued in that vein, you would see that in James 1.1, James says, James, a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Titus 1.1, Paul, a slave of God and apostle of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Jude 1.1, Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Or Revelation 1.1, where the Lord sends his revelation by sending his angel to a slave John. Same word. Now, suffice to say, the most popular and visible descriptions of Christianity do not talk about being slaves of Christ or slaves of God. But what if it did? Cultural connotations aside, which are difficult to overcome. I'm not sure that any more difficult back then than they are today. We are 150-ish years removed from what we consider a dark chapter in our history's, our nation's history of slavery. Slavery's still going on when this is being written. I think it would be just as offensive, but perhaps it would define our relationship on very clear terms. Identifying ourselves as slaves of Christ, or slaves, it feels weird, but I'm not sure it should be when we speak so often about Jesus being Lord, which he can be translated master. What do we exactly mean when we say Jesus is Lord? Did you know that the New Testament uses the word for Lord over 700 times, and over 600 of those times it's used in reference to God or Jesus? And in contrast, the New Testament uses the word Savior only 24 times. 600? 24. He is both. What, what is the emphasis? And when we say, look, when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay, when we're confessing Jesus Lord, would it feel different when we say, Jesus is Master? Would that feel different? think it might, because I don't know if Lord has the same connotations that perhaps it did back then. This is not normal language to talk about in our relationship with Jesus, and why is that? Well, one pastor, and I tend to agree with him, said this, we have lost this incredibly important concept of Jesus as Lord, and I am his slave. We have a man-centered emphasis in the church. 
We have a man-centered theology that dominates evangelicalism in which we talk about Jesus coming along as a kind of buddy who loves you and wants to satisfy all your desires and give you everything you want. But that's not what the New Testament teaches. What the New Testament teaches is not that you're Lord and He's your slave. It's that He's Lord and you're His. But we don't talk like that. Being a slave of Christ, though, is not a foreign concept in Scripture. It's not just, oh, let's kind of do some Greek gymnastics yoga and make it work. Paul uses these terms to speak to actual slaves about how to live as Christians in slavery. Interestingly though, Ephesians chapter 6, if you have, so I have uh, the ESV Bible. It's the only Bible I've preached out of really. I got it in 2006. Uh, since then they have an updated version of which I noticed as I was putting up verses, they've changed it. By changed, I mean the translation has been updated. And some word choices are different. So I'll read you from the ESV that I have, and you'll notice the word choices that they make. Ephesians 6 verse 5 says, Slaves, so he's speaking to real slaves, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ." doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Paul says this again when speaking to those who are free and not functionally slaves in order to challenge them to live differently. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 22, in my older ESV, says, for he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. That's interesting language in this context. You were bought. You were purchased. Perhaps it begins to give light on some of the verses that Peter referenced from the Old Testament says, you are to be a people of my own possession. The relationship is perhaps different or deeper than, than we have been thinking. Now, it's important to have some idea of a Roman slavery context if we're going to understand what it means in our relationship to God. Slaves in Rome, not exactly as you might imagine slaves to be in our American kind of lens that we may see it through. Not totally different, but a little bit. Slaves in Rome certainly had no rights. And by that I mean they had zero ownership of anything. They had no legal rights in court. They had no real citizenship in Rome. They were, in many ways, property, possessions. They weren't asked by their masters, hey, what would you like to do with your life? Think about that, right? How can you experience complete fulfillment? What would you like to do? What would you like to be? They were directed and told what to do. 
Slaves were chosen. Slaves were bought. Slaves were owned. Slaves were dependent, directed, and disciplined by their masters. And as I said, it may feel offensive today to think about that, but I'm not sure it was necessarily any less offensive back in the day, but it may have been very much clear. It was a very powerful image. And so if we can just, for a second, as if you can, put some of those connotations to the side and think of the, the goodness of the image, the value of the image, and what kind of understanding it gives us about our relationship with Christ and our Lord. An image that declares that our lives are not defined by our wills and our desires and our goals and our plans and our ambitions and our comforts, but by His. So when I say, as Peter said, that I'm a born-again Christian, when I say Jesus is my Lord, when I say that I've been bought and purchased by the blood of Jesus, I'm saying that Jesus is sovereign over my life and my death. Everything in between is everything in between. Life and death. I'm born, I die. What? It's all His. That's why Romans 14, I think, is an incredibly powerful passage where he says in verse 7, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. So whatever Jesus wants, I submit to that. And if we put all the weirdness and the offensiveness aside for a second and consider what it means to declare Jesus as Lord and I His slave, how in viewing myself through that lens would everything change? Consider a couple things at me. Viewing myself as a slave of Christ, you know what it changes? My understanding of ownership. I own nothing. I own nothing. I am a manager of Jesus' stuff. And what is included in all his stuff? All of my time, all of my money, all of my energy, all of my resources, all the children in my family, my home, my job. Everything is his. And the question isn't what is my stuff? Like we kind of like, well, Lord, what of my giving am I going to give you? What of my talents am I going to give you? It's like we approach him and we go like, you know what? I got a little for you. Here you go. Let me see, Lord. Like, what little? It's all his. The question isn't what of yours. There's no your. There's no my. There's his. And the question is, how are you stewarding his stuff? How are you stewarding the people he's put in your lives? How are you stewarding the time he's given you, the money he's given you, the resources given you? You don't own anything. Viewing myself as a slave of Christ also changes my understanding of purpose. My plans actually are submitted to 
his plans. It was interesting, I was on my sabbatical this summer, and I asked myself some really deep questions about life, mission, and purpose, and I read a book, and the interesting thing he said is like, man, when everyone talks about writing a personal mission statement, which maybe you've done that before, maybe you've thought about it, they're like, yeah, I should do that. He said, the problem with Christians doing that is they always start with themselves. What is my mission? Wrong place to start. What is His purpose for you? What is His purpose for all Christians? What is His purpose for you in this life, in this neighborhood, in this place, in this church? You begin to ask a lot of questions about what your master is telling you to do and not just imagining what you would like to do because you understand yourself as a slave in his house. View myself as a slave of Christ changes my understanding of authority. Oh, Lord. Jesus has the absolute right to ask anything of me. Anything. If he is truly Lord and I am truly his slave, if he is truly master and I am under his authority, he can ask me to do anything even lose my life for him. Because he is absolute authority. And viewing myself as a slave of Christ changes my understanding of freedom to circle us back. I am free not to do whatever I want, but I am free to do whatever my master desires. And there's true freedom in that, right? We imagine that like, oh, I'm just going to live free and do whatever I want. He's like, there's no satisfaction in that. There's no joy in that. There's only freedom in serving, serving our Lord and Savior. So to close us up, the invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation to surrender to a gracious and merciful Master. And we must be reminded that He is not like our old Master. Romans 6, Paul reminds us that our old master was sin and a cruel master it is. Sin and Satan and self promises life and yet kills everything. Sin and Satan and self tempts us to be our own masters and our own lords and in the end, we become enslaved to all kinds of gods. But Jesus is a totally different kind of master. He is a gracious and radical one. We're not merely slaves of an earthly master. We are slaves of a Lord in a house. And this is a Lord who entered into our own slavery and purchased us with His own blood. Did you know that becoming His child in dare I say, being purchased and becoming his slave meant that he had to actually become a slave himself. Philippians 2 tells us that he emptied himself by assuming the form of a, your version says, servant. It's the same word. He assumed the form of a slave. He humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so when we talk about becoming slaves to Christ. We're talking about the eternal Son of God 
who created the universe, entering into human existence, submitting himself to authorities like a slave and a servant to men that he created that he might die to redeem us and to bring us into his family. That's the kind of master that we serve. And so if we only were slaves, that would be okay because the Lord became one before we ever were. But that's not just what he calls us. We are slaves who by grace through faith are also called heirs. We're also called sons. We're also called friends. Jesus says that freedom is found in submission to him and nowhere else. And so we'll close with John chapter 8 with Jesus talking about this freedom. And he says, In verse 31 of chapter 8, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed Him, If you abide in My Word, if you follow My commands, if you you obey what I've told you to do, you are truly My disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It won't be slavery. It won't be bondage. It won't be, oh, cosmic killer. Like, "Eh, that's no fun. He says this is freedom. And they answered Him, We're we're the offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, You will be free indeed to freely know Him, to freely experience His love, to freely be empowered by Him, to freely be cared and protected and disciplined by Him for His glory and for your joy. Let's pray.